0: We're in our fourth section of Revelation, uh, the seven visions. Up to this point, we've covered three other sections. Uh, The seven churches gave us a micro view of what God is doing on this earth. Uh, We looked at seven literal churches and what God was doing in them, and also the sufferings that they faced. And what we learn from them is things that we need to be aware of in our age. You see, what happened to the early church is happening to our church too, and it's happened to every church in between. So we learn some valuable lessons from them. The seven seals exposed us to sort of the macro view of God's plan. It took us into heaven, and we saw this big, broad plan of what God was doing through this earth. And it came to us as a sort of picture of seven judgments, seven judgments that God was going to release, not to punish us and not to punish the world, uh, but ultimately to bring his plans to bear. And yes, unfortunately in that, the wickedness of this world will have to pay the consequences. And then in the seven trumpets, we looked at this cosmic view of God's plan. And what they did was they introduced us to warnings that God was giving to this earth. Because guess what? There's still time to repent. God wants this earth to come back to him. He doesn't want you know, everyone to be destroyed. And he's saying through these warnings, please turn your hearts, come back to me, the living God. And everyone has that invitation today. Whether you're a new believer today and just encountered Christ for the first time. Or maybe you're here today and you don't even believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The invitation is open to every single person on this earth. Of course, what we also saw in the seven trumpets were these supernatural forces, and that sort of leads us into the seven visions and what we're covering this morning. This uh, mic sounds like it's ringing in my ears. Is it ringing? Okay, let's uh, maybe just turn down the gain a bit. There we go. Amen. That's good. In the seven visions, we're seeing God's plan, and in some cases, even events that we've covered before, except this time, we're seeing them from a very different perspective. And the perspective that we're seeing them from is this cosmic battle that has been waging, this battle between God and Satan. And it's important to understand that all the visions we've covered up until this point in the seven visions, which actually we haven't got to the seven visions, we're getting to them this morning, and all the visions that we're going to see are all visions of victory. These visions are visions of victory. They're not visions of despair. They're not here so that we can sort of shelter away and go hide in the corner and and shake in our boots. These are visions of victory. Victory that God claimed over Satan and it's been done, it is finished and that's how it's going to be. And we get to see these visions play out in these different ways. And I do want to give us a disclaimer because this morning we're getting to this first two visions of this section and that's the two beasts of Revelation. But I want to give you a disclaimer. We could spend literally the next three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, perhaps even the next year, just unpacking the beasts of revelation. Believe me, there is so much symbology in it. There is so much reference in it. And there's holes, there's like a million different ways we can interpret these beasts. And some of you here this morning may have been uh, reading about the beasts of revelation. Maybe someone's taught you on them and you have your own perspective and you have your own interpretation. And that's great. This morning, I'm not going to go into all the detail. I'm not going to talk about Nero and how it could represent the Roman Empire in Nero's age. We might touch on some of that this morning. But fundamentally this morning, I felt like God wanted me to preach a message to say to you, what is God saying to our church today through these visions? In other words, what does God want us to learn? What does God want us to hold on to this morning? And so more than an intellectual preach, what we are trying to hear this morning is God's heart for us. And so if you disagree with me, if I do interpret something that's different to the way you've traditionally viewed it or interpreted it, please don't throw stones. Just be nice. We can debate this. In fact, we are going to have a dinner in doctrine on the beast. We're going to create a special time for us to gather and punch it out, man, and say, no, the beast is this, the beast is that, this is the beast. Okay, great, but not today. Amen? (laughs) Hallelujah. So turn within your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 17, but let's pray first. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is meant to inspire us and not confuse us. You never gave us a complicated Rubik's Cube here so we could try and like mull over it and think, oh my gosh, what do we, what do we need to know? What don't, what don't we know? What aren't we seeing? Lord, you reveal your word to us. Your scriptures come li- alive, alive to us through the power and the transformation of your Holy Spirit. And so more than anything else this morning, I pray for your power to be evident here, your anointing to be present, and I pray that these words would become life to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, rem- let's just remind ourselves how chapter 12 ended. In verse 17 of chapter 12, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, the dragon being Satan, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then there's this weird statement at the end. It says, And he stood on the sand of the sea. So essentially how it all ended, us, ended off for us last week was that Satan, because he's lost his position and authority, because he has no authority in heaven anymore, because he has no position in heaven anymore, because he can't accuse us as God's people, he is frustrated, he's angry. Add to that the fact that he can't attack Jesus because Jesus has ascended to the highest throne, and he can't attack the church because the church now is in the wilderness being protected, right? So what does he do? He turns his attention on us, God's people, the believers, individually. At home, when we're in our quiet times, when we're out on the streets, He comes and He witnesses to us and He manipulates us and He does things to us. Why? Because He wants to destroy God's people. Verse 1 of Revelation 13 continues and it says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. In other words, ten crowns on the horns and (coughs) blasphemous names on its head. I wish the words could be shorter in Revelations. It would be helpful. The picture here, Satan is standing on the edge of the sea. Don't forget that. That point is very important. And it's almost as if Satan is waiting for something. He's waiting for an event. He's waiting for a moment. And the fact is he is. He's waiting for this beast of the ocean to rise up out of the ocean. And the reason I'm laboring this point to us this morning is that the ocean is an important concept here. It's important we understand what the ocean means. It speaks to us about the nature of this enemy that Satan is about to unleash on God's people. In Isaiah 17 and verse 12, Isaiah explains to us a little bit about the ocean. He says this, Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. And so people, humanity, is compared to the ocean. And then he goes on, And the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. So it's not just people, it's the nations of the world. You see, throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, if you think of James and the power of our tongue being compared to a ship on the sea, it's always been used to sort of compare wicked humanity. The ocean is a representation of people living in this chaotic world, restless, chaotic, and always looking for ways and systems to contrive against God. Looking for ways to develop things that are going to stand against the living God. And so the fact that this beast comes out of the sea, tells us that Satan will be using our own human wickedness against us in this season. Let me say that again. Satan will use our own human wickedness against us. And that brings us to this first enemy, the beast of the sea. I believe the beast of the sea is a representation of the wicked systems of this world, including nations and governmental structures. Satan's going to use those things against us. In verse 2, we start to get a sense. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. This vision in Revelation echoes a vision that Daniel the prophet had in Daniel chapter 7. I don't have time to read it this morning, but I would encourage you to go and study the beasts of Daniel. Daniel 7 verses 2 all the way through to verses 7. In fact, you can read the whole book of Daniel. You'll see it aligns with what we're reading in Revelation. But in Daniel's vision there were four separate beasts. There was a lion, there was a bear, there was a leopard, and this final beast that Daniel sees is so terrifying that he can't even describe it in words, apart from the fact that it had ten horns and great iron teeth. And what's interesting to note about Daniel's beasts is although they're different and distinct from one another, they share one common trait. They have a common nature. The nature that all of these beasts share is that they are absolutely opposed to God's people. In that case, it was the nation of Israel. For Daniel, these beasts could have been Babylon, the old Babylon, then Assyria, then the new Babylon, and the Medo-Persian Empire, and we could spend days trying to figure out who they all were. But now in Revelation, all of these beasts have come into one beast. They've morphed together. The same distinct beasts have now become one massive beast. If anyone has ever watched any Japanese sort of animation movies, you see these big beasts rising out of the ocean like Godzilla, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about this Godzilla looking like monster, eyes, flames of fire, you name it. Whatever you can picture in your mind, that's what we're seeing. But here's the deal. Like the beasts in Daniel, this beast in Revelation has exactly the same nature too. Its nature is to target God's people. The offspring of the woman. And again, while we could spend the entire morning trying to figure out who the beast is today... The fact is that this beast has seven heads. And what that tells me is that these seven heads mean that this beast applies to every single generation in the world. Because it has seven heads, it takes on different forms, different types, different systems for every generation and every people that has ever lived and every people that will continue to live. The beast is not something we can fix to some moment in history. It's not something we can relegate to the future. It's not coming. It's not something that came and has gone now. This beast is actually running rampant right now in this world. According to Open Doors USA, 340 million Christians last year lived in countries where persecution was severe. To put that in a little bit of context for you, 340 million people is just less than the American population, right? The official population. Can you imagine the entire entire nation of America being Christian? And all of us being persecuted severely for our faith. That's what's happening in the world. 5,898 Christians were murdered last year. 6,175 were detained or imprisoned, and another 3,829 were kidnapped. In addition to that, 5,110 churches and other Christian-related facilities, whether that was parachurch ministries or schools or orphanages or soup kitchens, were destroyed. And if you're wondering what the beast's persecution looks like in today's age, it looks a little bit like this. It looks like a Christian woman in India watching as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. To this day she has no idea whether her sister is alive or dead. It looks like a man in a North Korean prison camp being waken up after being beaten unconscious for being a believer only so that he can be beaten again and again and again. It looks like a Christian woman in Nigeria running for her life after escaping kidnapping from Boko Haram only to find out that she's pregnant as a result of rape. And it doesn't end there, because what's worse, when she gets back to her village, she'll be rejected by her family and the village itself. It looks like a pastor in Afghanistan receiving a text message to let him know that the Taliban knows who he is, and they're coming for him. The point I'm trying to make is not only is the beast real to these people, but they don't even have to guess who the beast is, because the beast is standing right in front of them every day of their lives. And it's only in places where we have religious freedoms for now, where we have the luxury of fighting over and trying to figure out just who the beast might be. The beast is here. In my view, more important than who the beast could potentially be is what the beast represents. The beast is the persecuting power of Satan, the visible persecuting power of Satan. It's his plans that are executed by both the systems and the wicked governments of this world. Verse 13 continues in verse 3. It says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now, if you were John, you probably think this is Nero, the Roman emperor. Perhaps he was right, and maybe that was relevant for him then. But I do want to say one thing from this passage of Scripture. What's clear is that this beast has been mortally wounded. I don't know about your understanding of the word mortally wounded, but when I read the word mortally wounded, it means that generally speaking, the person who has a mortal wound will die, right? Irrespective of the fact that this beast has seven heads and only one of the heads is wounded, if you're mortally wounded, you will die in your entirety. Your ear doesn't become mortally wounded. We become mortally wounded when we are about to die. And that tells me, that something must have wounded this beast in such a massive way that he is ultimately going to die. And so who did it? What happened? How did this beast get mortally wounded? For that we have to go back to the promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Verse 15 of Genesis 3 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God is speaking to Satan after Adam and Eve have fallen. And then it says this, He shall bruise your head. That's the Hebrew word shuf. For the word breeze it means Bruise It means crush. He will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. In my opinion, the beast carries the wound that Satan carries. He is ultimately a representation of Satan. And this wound came as a result of the victory of the cross. It came as a result of the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It came as a result of Jesus taking his place of highest authority in the kingdom. This beast has been mortally wounded because Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority in this world, not the beast. And if you've ever crushed the head of a snake, you'll know that it doesn't have much time to live. So how is it then that this beast has been healed? Why is it been healed? What could possibly heal the beast? Well, Revelations 13.5 tells us, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 years months. The wound on the dragon's head is healed because God has given Satan a predetermined time in which to operate, 42 months or three and a half years. You're probably thinking that number sounds awfully familiar. It's exactly the same time period that the two witnesses that we read about in Revelation chapter 11 get to witness with power and authority, friends. It is the gospel age, the age between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ, my interpretation. It's a picture that throughout this gospel age, as much as the church will have a powerful witness, Satan will continue to persecute the people of the church. The offspring of the woman will continue to face difficulty. But make no mistake, this beast and his wound is fatal. And he has only a limited time to operate. Verse 6 of Revelation 13 It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. It's interesting because at some point, if you read this text, everybody on this earth will be under the beast's authority. And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In other words, there is a group of people that will never worship the beast, and we'll talk about those now. But here's the second point in this section. The whole world is going to suffer at the hands of this beast. But understand this, us as the offspring of the woman, the us as the children of God, those who have been saved and redeemed, will have eternal protection. Now it may be uncomfortable for us to hear this, But it shouldn't come as a surprise. Persecution is on the rise across the world. It did for John in the early church. He suffered and believe me he suffered a lot. It did for uh, the reformers during the reformation and it will for us. But what's clear is this suffering is suffering that's not just allocated to or reserved for the church. The entire world is going to suffer at the hands of this beast. And when you look around the world, you realize that even in places where believers are persecuted for their faith, whether that's Iran or North Korea, you have to understand that everybody within those totalitarian regimes are suffering equally as much. There is no discrimination. Everybody will suffer at the hands of these regimes. The only challenge is out of deception and fear, people will turn to worship them. When you're scared for your life, And you think you have no other choice. What do you do? You worship the very people that are persecuting you. You worship the very structures that have been put in place that are destroying you. But guess what? Those that call ourselves Christ followers whose names have been written in the book of life. See the text was clear. Everybody whose name wasn't written in will worship the beast. That means those of us whose names are found in the book of life. And how do you get into the book of life? All you have to do is accept the fact that Jesus died for your sins. It's the gospel message. We sang about it this morning. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to go to church. You have to believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. In fact, the more perfect you are, the more unqualified you are for the kingdom. God wants unqualified people in the kingdom. He qualifies the called, friends. He doesn't call the qualified. He doesn't want us to be perfect. And so our names go into this book when we say, Lord Jesus, I look at you on the cross and all I have to do is just thank you for what you did for me because it is is enough. It is enough. Your blood has paid for my sins and I am set free. If you do that, then you'll be able to withstand worshipping this beast in whatever form it takes, in whatever generation you live in. They might think, well, how is that even possible? How is it possible that we can not worship one of these structures? How is it possible that when the structure is beheading people in the streets that we will have the ability to withstand it? Let me tell you. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak. Notice it says when they deliver you over, not if they deliver you over, or you potentially could be delivered over. All of us at some point in our life will face persecution. Not all of us will die. And that's a good thing, right? By persecution, I mean, we'll all die unless unless Jesus comes back before. But all of us are going to have to, at some point in our lives, take a stand for Christ. But when we do, He will give us the words to speak. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. If you continue to read this passage, it actually says this, that the Father from heaven will send His words by the Holy Spirit into our hearts, and it will be Him speaking in us, not us speaking ourselves. That's how we have the courage. And if it's not just the courage that we can stand on, guess what else we can stand on in this season and in the seasons to come? He said, we have an eternal hope. We don't live for this world. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. One day, this world will be wrapped up like a scroll altogether. We're seeing it throughout the book of Revelation. And where will we be? We will be with God in heaven for eternity. Mind-blowing. In our hours of greatest difficulty, God will give us the courage. He'll give us the fortitude. He'll give us the wisdom. He'll give us the ability to stand on our feet. And that tells me that we as God's church are not a people that are governed by fear, friends. We are governed by faith. Faith in a king. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so no matter what's going on out there, we are to never be scared. Verse 9 of Revelation 13. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That sounds a little bit rough there, right? If you go into captivity, then go to jail. If you're going to be slain with a sword, then just accept it. You think, well, I don't want to do that. But doesn't it sound like the examples I read earlier? Doesn't it sound like what people are going through today? Some people are being sent right now to be slain for their faith. There are times when we as faithful servants of God will be asked by God to put our lives down for the sake of the gospel. Now what I'm not saying to you this morning is that all of us have to leave this place and go find opportunities to die for Jesus. What I am saying to you, however, if God places it in your heart that you are called to a nation of this world where there is severe persecution and the likelihood of you ever coming back from that nation is remote, you need to say, Lord, I'm willing to lay my life down for you, King. If it's God's will for you, we go happily. It's in our suffering. It's in our willingness to stand up and to be prepared to die for the gospel that the gospel message becomes so powerful, friends. In fact, a persecuted church is a powerful church. A comfortable church is a weak church. Now again, I'm not asking us to find moments and reasons for us to be persecuted, but there is a reality that in persecution, if God is speaking through us, how many other people will get to know who Jesus is? Tertullian, the great or ancient church father, said this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know what he had in mind when he said that? He had in mind the burning bodies of Christians used to light up the streets of Rome. They used Christian bodies for lighting in Rome. And he said every time they kill a Christian, no matter what blood is spilt on the ground, the very next day there will be a church. Why? Because if I'm willing to watch somebody die for their faith and they're willing to go to death, that's a faith, friends, that I want to live for, friends. And it's in our moments of greatest persecution that our witness becomes so powerful, friends, and it changes the world. Now, maybe you're not called to die, but let me tell you something. You're called to witness the gospel in the face of a world that laughs at you because you believe in a Savior. When you are sick, when you are suffering, when you're in positions of hardship, and you can still say, I will serve the Lord. Because you know what? He is a faithful God. My Redeemer lives, just like Job said after he lost everything, changes the lives of people around us. Verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. We're at the second beast. These beasts, man. You think if the first beast is daunting enough, I just want to tell you, you better put your, your seatbelts on because this second beast, I believe, is the beast that should concern us the most. Forget about persecution. Forget about governments and totalitarian regimes. I mean, those things God will sort out and we'll be able to stand against. This beast, my friend, Hmm, It's nasty. You see, not only will Satan deploy the wicked structures of this world, governments and systems and wicked people against God's children, but he's also going to attack us as God's children at the level of our faith. The second beast represents Satan and his use of false religion to persecute God's people. Now, I know that naturally all of us throughout when I said false religion, go to this very specific place in our mind. We start to think, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, these cults, man, they're going to mess us up. We start to think, oh, you know, these other weird religions that are opposed to Jesus Christ. Yeah, they just bad stuff. Let me tell you, friends, that's not what I think is in view here. In fact, I believe Satan's biggest damage to the church comes through fi- fake and counterfeit Christianity. It doesn't come through cults. It doesn't come through other religions. It comes through fake, counterfeit Christianity. You might think, well, how can I say that? How do we even get that? You know what's interesting about this beast is this beast looks like a lamb. He doesn't come out there looking like a gnarly like, uh, Godzilla. He doesn't come out there looking like David Koresh. He comes out there looking like a lamb. The only picture of a lamb we have in Revelation up to this point is the lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. In other words, Satan will use a form of Christianity against God's people. Hmm. Don't be surprised. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warned us about this. He said this, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You know the view of that context or the context of that passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians. Paul is speaking about false prophets in the church. He's not talking about, hey, watch out for Taliban, watch out for Al-Qaeda, watch out for Boko Haram. They're coming for you. They're going to turn you into this or that. No, he's saying watch out in the church because there are false prophets among you that are looking like Jesus. They talk like Jesus. They may even sound like Jesus, but they're not Jesus. I want to tell you a little story. In 1949, between 1949 and 1953, the Hebrides Islands in Scotland experienced what can only be described as probably the greatest revival in modern day history. The power of God was so powerful on that island during that time that people walking on the streets, in fact, it's a number of islands, would fall under the power of God and repent for their sins. And let me tell you, there was no one preaching at that moment in time. People would just fall under the power of God. Bars closed down. Taverns closed down. There there was no more prostitution on the island. In fact, prisons lay empty, not for days, but for years. This revival came as a result of two old ladies praying and seeking God, saying, Lord, we want more of you on our island. And God used an amazing man called Duncan Campbell, a powerful Presbyterian minister minister mightily in this entire sort of revival that went on. And he had a dream one night. And I want to recount to you what he said about his dream. One night before the revival broke out, he was walking into one of the towns on one of the islands in this dream. And as he approached the town, he noticed that a large crowd had gathered and they were listening to someone preaching. As he got closer, he heard the word of God being preached. But he didn't recognize the preacher. After a while it dawned on him that this was no ordinary preacher. This was the devil. At the end of the preach, he went up to the devil and he said, You're the devil, aren't you? He said, Yes, I am. Duncan asked, Why are you preaching the gospel? Why are you preaching the word of God? And the devil responded saying, Duncan Campbell, don't you know that the greatest weapon I have is the preaching of the word of God without the anointing of the Spirit? Because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That statement, the letter kills and the spirit gives life," comes from Second Corinthians chapter three. And let me tell you what Paul was saying. He was saying that the word of God, written on tablets of stone, written in a Bible, if read without the anointing, becomes legalism and it becomes religion. We don't need more religion in the church, friends. We need relationship with its king. But Paul said, when God takes the Holy Spirit and he writes the law on our hearts, there is an experience, an encounter with the living God, people's lives are changed. David Ravenhill in his book, Surviving the Anointing, to explain this analogy, he says, you can take a knife that doesn't have a cutting edge to it, it's dull, and run it over your hand long enough, it will produce a callous. You'll become so hardened that almost nothing will cut through. And that's what the Word of God does without the anointing of the Spirit. It produces a callousness in the lives of men and women. It's easy for us to think that the beast of false religion lives out there or it lives in other faiths, but more sinister the beast is the one that I think does the most damage and that is the beast that lives inside of the church. And guess what? It's infiltrated churches across this nation and across this world and I'm telling you now when I say that I'm speaking about us too. This beast can infiltrate us. It's the kind of church that becomes so reliant on its own abilities to produce results that it forgets it needs the God of the Bible to produce those results. It's the kind of church that starts to lean on giftedness as opposed to anointing. It's the kind of church that preaches from the word without any power. It's the kind of church that says, you know what, it's fine. With more money, we can do more things. No, friends, this church can be nothing without God. If God is not in this, we don't want to be here. And I'm not not telling you we've got it right all the time. We haven't. And I have to repent before you today because, you know, there have been times in my life where I've relied on my own abilities where I've looked at a message and said, you know, i got this. I can understand it. I can do this. But let me tell you, God confronted me this week. He said, without the anointing, you are in trouble, friend. And that's on me. But I'm telling you, friends, I don't want to be a church that operates without God. I want to be a church that functions with God in us, through us, around us, in everything that we do, friends. Because if we want to see revival break out in this city and in this nation, it will take the power of God. Not clever speaking or great worship or any of that stuff. It will take the power and the anointing of God. Verse 12, it takes, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its present and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It's interesting that this counterfeit Christianity inevitably will always align itself with the systems of this world. But make no mistake, while this version of Christianity may look like a lamb, it's really the the dragon's voice that we're listening to. And when you consider this picture, the first beast and the second beast combining, or put another way, when counterfeit Christianity aligns itself with the persecuting systems of this world, what you end up with is the inevitable suffering of the true church. It happened in John's day. It happened with Rome and the neuronic persecutions. You know, Nero was a weirdo. He ended up killing himself in 868. But then everyone believed that he became this God and he was resurrected. Nero persecuted Christians and so when people believed that he was divine, they killed more Christians. But you know what, it didn't end there. Because guess what happened after Nero? There was a guy called Constantine, a Roman emperor, who decided actually, you know, Jesus is the way. And you know what he did? He made Christianity a state-run religion. That same state-run religion murdered everyone that was opposed to their regime. Not to the gospel, to their regime. Even believers. And you know what happens today? It happens when all of us who stand for biblical truth, who stand for the God of the Bible and His ways are called bigots, or called narrow-minded, or because we won't bow our knee to the God of this world. We won't bow our knee to the counterfeit version of God that people have created in their minds, friends. And I want to encourage you, don't ever do it. Verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Fake religion produces fake miracles. One of the most concerning aspects for me is that the counterfeit church has the ability in it to produce miracles. I mean, that just blows my mind. But it shouldn't surprise us, right? Right? It happened in Egypt, Exodus chapter 7. Pharaoh calls his magicians, they do crazy stuff too. It happened in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. There was Simon the magician who had enthralled people with his clever ways. They thought this guy was amazing. And then he realizes, actually, you know what? The the, the apostles have more power than he does, and he wants their power so he can go and sell it again. And that's my point, is it happens today. We see it happening all the time. We're so-called men and women of God, peddle their miracles to the highest bidder. It's interesting, miracles always come with sowing a seed. I don't see that operating in the kingdom. I believe that there are miracles. I believe that God can raise the dead. I believe that God can heal us. I believe the power of God's word. I believe that the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit can resurrect not just the physically dead, but the spiritually dead, friends. But I am telling you this. The miracles that we see in the life of a godly church follow the preaching of God's word. They follow the preaching of of God's word under the anointing and the power of God. They follow the gospel message being proclaimed. They follow us putting Jesus on the throne. Then miracles come. They never come before the preaching of the word. Mark 16 verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere. Speaking of the disciples. When the Lord worked. Uh, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. My point being this morning, friends, if we are not to be deceived in this generation, we are not to follow miracles. We are called to follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, something amazing happens. Because following Jesus means we preach the gospel. It means we testify to the goodness of his nature. It means the power of God comes upon us because the Holy Spirit is with us. And then the miracles come. They never come first. That's a very easy way to know what you're dealing with. Verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. A counterfeit church aligned with the systems of this world is a bloodthirsty and controlling monster, friends. You see, when you don't bow down to this church, it doesn't like it. When you don't bow down to the way it wants you to operate, it hates you. And whether you're a Christ follower or not, The end result is not buying down to this monster will cause you end of life. What it will definitely cause is the loss of your inalienable God-given freedoms. We see this in any state-sponsored religion. Whether it was the Holy Roman Empire who basically killed a lot of the reformers. Christians, they burnt them at the stake. Whether it's the Taliban in Afghanistan or North Korea and the forced worship of their divine reader, Kim John, who is now God. It happens all the time. Verse 16. Also, it causes all both, small and great, the band can come up, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding Calculate the number of the beast. Just to be clear, that's not an arithmetic, arithmetic cal- calculation. This is not algebra. It's saying, think about it, understand it, and then it explains to us what the number of the beast is. For it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. How old are you? Like, yeah, we got the mark of the beast. What is it? Tell us, Mark. What is the mark of the beast? What do we need to look out for? I know the scripture has caused much debate over the years. Probably in the last few decades, maybe this year more than ever, and last year and the year before. But I have to tell you this, that I don't believe, at least this is my interpretation, that what we're dealing with is a literal mark. You see, just like 777 marks us by the sealed promise of the Holy Spirit in us, in other words, we are God's property, I don't believe that 666 will be an actual physical mark. I don't believe it's a tattoo. I don't believe it's a credit card. I don't believe it's in your phone number. I don't certainly not believe that it's the COVID vaccine. I don't believe it's any one of those things. It's a symbol of humanity. The scripture tells us it's a symbol of humanity created on the sixth day, completely and totally wicked because of the fall. It is humanity to its nth degree. It is the worst of the worst of the worst, friends. It is humanity left to its own devices. A humanity without God. That's the mark of the beast. It's not a number that people will choose by getting it tattooed on them. Simply put, people choose the number of the mark of the beast every single time they choose to reject. The only viable alternative there is, and His name is Jesus. When we choose to reject Jesus, we receive the mark of the beast. Modern humans love to think that we've evolved. And by that, I think we think we've become more enlightened, that somehow back in the day, humanity was stupid. But now, because we are clever and we've got universities and we've got all of this crazy stuff that we know more and we think more and we're better people for it and so we live in this world that's become postmodern, where there is no such thing as absolute truth anymore we live in a world of relative truths right your truth my truth everybody else's truth there is no truth anymore but when I read this word it tells me there is such a thing as absolute truth you see the fact of the matter is humanity has not evolved In some senses, humanity is right back in the Garden of Eden. And I want to tell you this. Before us today are two choices. There is will you eat from the tree of life or will you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are only ever two choices. There are only two kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of the devil. You either have 777 on your heart because the Holy Spirit has put it there or you're in the the kingdom of the devil and you have 666 on you. It's not something that's coming. It's already here, friends. The question that we have to ask ourselves as God's church in this season is what are we going to do to help people in this world make the right decision? More importantly, how do we convince them that there is an alternative, that His name is Jesus, that He died on the cross, that He paid for their sins, and that this wicked monster wants nothing more than their death and execution? I'll tell you how we do it. We trust God for the anointing. We trust God for the power of His Holy Spirit. We trust God for more of Him. We trust God for signs and wonders to follow the preaching of His Word. We trust God to break out in revival, which begins in repentance in our own hearts where we've got it wrong. We trust God to fill us every moment of every day saying, Lord, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go at all. I want to be like Moses, friends, that says to God, if you're not going to lead this nation into the promised land, we are not going to the promised land. We need to become a church that says, Lord, wherever you are, that's where we will be. And that, friends, is how we convince this world. And you know what happens when we do that? When we have the power and the anointing with us, we get out of our seats, we get out of our cars, we get out of our houses, and we go into the world and we say, guys, guess what? To know Christ and make Him known is not some cool statement we have on the wall. It's a reality to get you out of the hell that you're living in already and every one of us in this room have been called to do it not just today not just tomorrow but for the rest of our lives friends there is a world going to hell I've said it before there are people right now walking around with the mark of the beast on their forehead and on their hands they don't even know they've got it it just takes us under the power and the anointing of God to say there is a person named Jesus and he can pull you right out of that hole he did it for me he did it for every single one of us in this room there is no perfect person in this church And what we need to avoid at all costs is becoming self-righteous, puffed up with pride and arrogance. Religion kills. The Spirit gives life. Can we trust for more of God's Spirit? Can I ask you to stand with me? I want to pray today that we would... Be bold enough to come up here to the front and say, Lord, we need more of your anointing, we need more of your power, we need more of your presence, we need more of your filling, we need more of you in everything that we do. We don't need less of you, we need more of you. We need more of you in this church, Lord. We need more of you in our families, we need more of you in our businesses, we need more of you in our schools, we need more of you everywhere. We don't need clever ideas, clever theology, clever philosophy, we need you, Jesus. And so if you want to be filled or ask God to fill you fresh, maybe you've become depleted. I want you to come up to the front chair and stand in the front. I'm going to pray over us this morning. Be bold. Just come up and say, Lord, I need a greater capacity of your anointing. I need greater revelation of who you are. Come now to the front. Just come and stand here. Just come up to the front. Don't be scared. Just come and stand here. And, you know, this is not a magical moment. You know, this is not one of those miracles that we're peddling to the highest bidder. This is us coming to God saying, we can't do this without you, Lord. And we don't want to do it without you. In fact, we need you more than ever. Just come make space. Just keep filling in and then fill up the aisles if you need to. This is an act of faith, friends. It's an act of submission. It's an act of us crying out to God saying, we need more of you, Lord. So I'm going to ask us to raise our hands towards heaven. Lord, as we stand here today, Lord, we know, Lord, that there are beasts right now dead set against us. They want to destroy us. They want to overturn us. They want to overthrow us, Lord. But we know, Lord, that this beast has been mortally wounded because of your victory on the cross, Jesus. His time is numbered. But the reality is, Lord, we live in a world where we are going to be persecuted for our faith. We live in a world where we have to stand for you, Lord. And I'm praying right now, Lord, that you'll give us the capacity to do that, Lord. I pray, Lord, over every single person that has come up here, Lord, that is raising their hands towards you right now, Lord, that what you'll deposit in them right now is a greater capacity to know you, Jesus. Not information, but revelation, Lord. We're praying for revelation this morning for all of us. I prayed for myself, Lord. We need greater revelation of who you are. Lord, can you pour out your spirit on us, Lord, as we worship this next song over all of us here in the front and over everyone in this room. Pour out your spirit on us, Lord. Let your power fall this morning. We can't do this without you. We declare that this morning in Jesus' name. We need you, Jesus. Release in us, Lord, the capacity to bring the light of the gospel to this nation, to this world, and wherever else you send us. And we pray this today in the mighty name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship our King.